You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi DPC, today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Please read along with me. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a small town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and this man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Hi everyone, and welcome to the last sermon in our Place to Belong series. As we come to think about this topic, uh, that we are worshippers, let's pray and ask God to be with us.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series so far and the wonderful truths that you've revealed to us about who we are as your people. We pray that you'd be with us during this final sermon as we reflect on this idea of what it means for us to be worshippers. Amen. Every human is a worshipper. We bow down and give offerings to that which we worship. Now you might be thinking that's a pretty outdated idea. I mean, of course, people in the past worshipped all sorts of gods and idols and some even worshipped animals or the sun, but not today. At least not in Australia where we've outgrown belief in the supernatural. We've got science and reason and facts now. Well, times may have changed and our understanding of the world may have changed, but the human heart has not changed. We are still worshippers. It's just that the objects of our worship have changed. We may not worship kind of little statues, little idols, but we worship money or career or even other people. I think about it. We even call famous people our idols. We all have a deep longing to give our hearts to something that will provide us with meaning and purpose and satisfaction. We live for the object of our worship and we offer the service we think it demands. We can also throw into the mix the idea that our hearts long to be moved. We crave experiences that stir us and delight us. We seek that moment of deep satisfaction or soaring transcendence. You know what I'm talking about. You finish a good book or you come across a tranquil spot on your walk along Merry Creek. And something that enhances our worship is when we share it with someone else. We want everyone to read that book or to visit that spot along the creek. You yearn for the experience of a live concert or dancing the night away because a moment of joy shared with others is a joy magnified. I mean, how about attending a football grand final? I'm recording this before the big match between the Demons and the Bulldogs, but I'm sure that it was an exhilarating experience that moved people and strengthened the bonds between supporters. All humans have an impulse to worship, and that impulse shapes how we live. There are a number of different Greek and Hebrew words that are translated in the Bible by the English word worship. The first group I've categorized under the heading of devotion. These are words about posture or attitude. People bow down or they show reverence. This can be out of terror and fear or more out of love and affection. In either case, it's about fixing our hearts on something in submission to it. The second group come under the heading of service. These are words, these are words about deeds and words. People give external expression to the devotion in their heart. This can be acts of service done as a response of thanks or joy. It can also be acts done as a form of request, you know, perhaps offering a sacrifice to get that which is desired. All humans are worshippers, but we are broken in our worship. We deem the wrong things to be worthy of our ultimate worship or we worship in the wrong way. This leads to disappointment or disempowerment. Lockdown has revealed to many people that they had given their lives to certain things, and without those things now, they're left with nothing but despair. This is why we need to redirect our worship. 
when someone becomes a Christian, they don't start worshipping for the first time. Rather, their worship is redirected to the ultimate, perfect object of devotion and service, the loving God who made us. Only God can satisfy our impulse to worship because he's infinitely worthy and he can bear the weight of our devotion. Also, only God is able to give us what we truly need. This is what a Samaritan woman discovered when she met Jesus. Let's turn to John chapter 4. You'll see it in the welcome card. Jesus is in Samaritan territory and encounters a woman as he's sitting by a well. We should expect this to be a tense encounter since the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. While they had a common spiritual heritage, they disagreed on some key beliefs and practices, particularly about how to worship God. A conversation begins about water and having a drink, but it quickly turns to the topic of worship. Have a look at what the woman says in verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Here's a woman who speaks in language that we might be more used to, this kind of worship language. She's concerned with religious practices. But you know what? She's just like the vast majority of humans who have a broken worship that fails to satisfy. Her life is far from what she would like it to be. Now we might struggle to see this, but Jesus perceives her true need. He starts the conversation back in verse 7 by speaking about physical thirst, but then it quickly turns to spiritual thirst. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman doesn't understand what he means because she says she wants this water so she can stop coming to the well each day. So Jesus presses a little deeper to help her see that she doesn't have a water problem she has a worship problem. The conversation turns to the topic of the string of romantic relationships she's had. Jesus knows that she is longing for lasting satisfaction and is worshipping these relationships as a way to meet that longing. Well, he's offering her something greater. But she needs to redirect her worship before she can receive it. Look at how Jesus responds to a challenge about the right place to worship God. This is verses 21 and 22. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. This Broken woman needs to know the truth about God before she can fix her broken worship. And that truth is tied to her salvation, which is only found in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. We are all like this woman. We long for satisfaction. And deep down, we know that this is tied to worship. But apart from an encounter with Jesus, we fail to grasp what true worship is like. That's why Jesus came into the world. Which leads us to our next point in our outline. God has always sought worshippers, but on his terms. 
Look at what Jesus says next in John 4, verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father speaks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The Father seeks worshippers. We see this all throughout the Bible and in a moment we'll take a look, but I want to first touch on something that may have occurred to you. Does it seem a little odd to you that God is actively seeking worshippers? Does that seem a little presumptuous, self-centred, maybe power-hungry? Well, think about it this way. We worship that which we think is worthy. Is there anyone more worthy than God? Is there anyone who can give you exactly what you need and satisfy your deepest longings? Even those longings that are so deep, you aren't even truly aware of them until you have an encounter with God and, and you just taste even just a drop of that spiritual water that Jesus spoke of. It's perfectly legitimate for God to seek worshippers because he knows we can't be satisfied apart from worshipping him. I mean, what kind of a cruel God would he be if he has the answer to our broken worship, but then he hides himself away out of some sense of false humility? No, God loves us so much that he invites us to worship him. Augustine fam famously said this more than 1,600 years ago on the very first page of his Confessions. And I've uh, updated the, the language just a, a little bit. He says, You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Yet, in seeking worshippers, God seeks them to come on his terms. That's part of what Jesus is getting at in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. She believes she's worshipping the true God, but her worship is shrouded in ignorance and needs to be healed. So, throughout the Bible, God has drawn worshippers to himself, but has also helped them to see the right way to worship him. You go right back, chapter 4 of Genesis, we see the first murder took place over the matter of worship. Adam and Eve's boys brought offerings to the Lord, and God accepted Abel's offering, but Cain's he did not. And so in a jealous rage, Cain slayed his brother. It was a matter of worship, worship gone wrong. And then at the end of that chapter, we read this, Genesis 4, verse 26, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. There we see that Noah and Abraham worshipped God. They offered up sacrifices and they built altars. And that's a key theme in the Old Testament. While people worshipped God with praise, they also did it through sacrificing animals. And then in Exodus, we hear the repeated refrain to Pharaoh that's about worship. God said, let my people go so that they may worship. And God is not just seeking a whole bunch of worshippers, but a people, a united people who will worship him. Israel are later declared to be his kingdom of priests who will bless the world. And so the rest of the Old Testament is filled with examples of individuals joining Israel 
so that they might worship the true and living God. I mean, Ruth is one person that springs to mind. In Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, he's trying to sum all of this up by saying that the Father is seeking true worshippers who worship in the Spirit and in truth. I mean, first of all, he's telling the woman that worship is a matter of the heart. King David grasped this concept as revealed in Psalm 51, a prayer of confession. You might be familiar with it. This is verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This doesn't mean that animal sacrifices were actually unnecessary, but rather that they were useless if they were offered by hypocritical hearts. See, that was Cain's problem. Cain's problem with his worship was where his heart was at. And in time, many Israelites shared the same problem, and this is what the prophets often spoke about, that they did not have a right heart when they brought their offerings to God. God is looking for people to search their heart and admit their spiritual neediness. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Jesus is also telling the woman that worship is a matter of truth. You know, worship of God is to be on the basis that he provides. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord gives careful instructions on how people are to approach him for worship. You remember from our recent teaching series in the book of Exodus, when the people gathered at Mount Sinai, God then descended in his majestic glory to the top of the mountain. And the people were told that they couldn't approach it since the, the, the mountain was now holy. And Moses was given detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle and to establish the priesthood with its system of sacrifices to deal with sin. All of this was so that broken, sinful people could safely draw near to God without being consumed by his perfect holiness. Sadly, the history of Israel is a progression away from God's instructions. They often neglected the temple. They frequently worshipped idols. They were carried off to exile in Babylon for 70 years due to their corrupt worship. It's not just worshipping God, it's worshipping in the right way. They need to be true worshippers who worship in the spirit and in truth. But none of us can do this perfectly. I mean, it's hard enough to admit our own failings, but even harder to make proper use of the means God has provided for us to draw near. That's why we need Jesus. Which brings us to our next point. Jesus is the ultimate worshipper who leads believers in true worship. Jesus perfectly worshipped the Lord, and so he fulfilled what we might call worship of approach. You may not have considered this before, but if worship is partly about offering something to God so as to please him, then Jesus is the ultimate worshipper. The law contains careful instructions for the priests on how to offer sacrifices of atonement at the temple. They are worshippers, and they help the Israelites to approach God through their own acts of worship. These had to be done so that the holy God could remain in relationship with his sinful people. The book of Hebrews 
in the New Testament makes it clear that the sacrifice of animals and the worship that took place at the temple could never really deal with sin and cleanse the worshippers. Only Jesus does that because he is the perfect worshipper who offers his own life. Listen to Hebrews 10, and this is verses 11 to 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, but when this priest had offered all for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus' once-for-all act of worship has permanently opened the way for us to approach God. He fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law and was himself sinlessly perfect so he could offer himself. This means people who trust in Jesus, who've put their faith in him, can worship God in the spirit and in truth because we are accepted by God and his favour permanently rests on us. We can boldly approach God in the type of activity that we might call worship of response. And this worship is compelled by Jesus. You see, some people think that worship is only about earning God's favour. They, they think that worship of approach is the only form there is, and so we shouldn't talk about worship today. But even in the Old Testament law, there were things called fellowship offerings. These were sacrifices an Israelite could make in response to God's blessings upon them. They weren't about forgiveness. They were about celebrating relationship. In the same way, we can still worship God today as an act of fellowship and response to what he's done for us in Jesus. And that's why this worship is compelled by Jesus. He's laid down his life for us so that we can be restored to God. So how can we not worship? As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. This response is not only compelled by Jesus, but also shaped by Jesus, so that we can worship in the spirit and truth. He is the ultimate worship leader. He is the one who ushers us into God's presence so that we can engage in joyful worship of God that comes from our heart. But this worship is done in a way that he requires by the means he has provided. We'll get to that in a moment. There are two more ways for us to think about worship that I want to touch on. There is general worship that we do in all of our life, and there's special worship, which is what we do when we consciously respond to God through prayer and praise and other actions. Now, I'm not convinced that general and special are the best terms, and perhaps you could come up with better ones. One of my favourite theologians, John Frame, describes them as broad and narrow worship. That's not particularly catchy either, is it? Anyway, let's look at them. General worship is the devotion and service we do in all of life. Romans 12.1 says that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is an act of worship. And this doesn't mean everything we do is always worship. 
but rather we can live a life of devotion and service to God anywhere, anytime. And this relates to our idea of worship from the beginning of this sermon. We give our hearts to that which we think will satisfy us, and then we spend much of our time living in line with that devotion. When you do your studies or your job with a heart that longs to honour God, you're engaging in worship. When you serve others in the name of Christ, you are engaging in worship. Now, there are some people who will tell you that that's the beginning and end of Christian worship, and it's inappropriate to speak of church services as worship. Yet they fail to recognise that we can engage in worship of response and that God still calls us to honour him and praise him. This is what I mean by special worship. Now, some churches will narrow worship down to just singing. And it makes sense, given that music is one of the most powerful ways to connect with our hearts and to express what's on our hearts. You know, we can feel our devotion when we sing. But when we worship as a group, there is also prayer and the Lord's Supper and other acts we do as a form of worship, of response. These are things that the Bible commands us to do as Christians. You know, we hear the word of God and then we bow our hearts down in prayers of confession or we lift our hearts up in joyful prayer. Even our conversations after church can be a form of worship as we respond to what God has done for us in Jesus. We celebrate that. And this special worship can take place outside of church, whether in small groups, within your family, or even just privately. You know, Jesus is your worship leader, even when you are lying in bed at night and giving thanks to your Father for getting you through another day. This too is worship. All humans are worshippers. And the impulse to worship is only truly satisfied when we worship God through Jesus as a gathering people. Let me say that again. All humans are worshippers, and the impulse to worship is only truly satisfied when we worship God through Jesus as a gathering people. We've covered most of that big idea, so let's finally turn to what it means to be a gathering people. We're going to see that Christians are gathered and are gathering for worship. There's a really helpful passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that shows how Jesus transforms worship for believers. Verses 18 to 29, you'll see in the welcome card. I'm going to skip verses 25 to 27. Let me read them out for us. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storms, talking about Mount Sinai to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then we'll jump down to verse 28. Therefore, 
Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews contrasts here the difference between worship under the old covenant and worship under the new covenant. And the latter is characterized by joy and freedom and the certainty of forgiveness and boldness in our approach. It's better worship because it's founded on a better word. But do note that God is still a consuming fire and our worship must be acceptable, offered in reverence, in awe. God hasn't become less holy since Jesus came. Rather, Jesus has offered his perfect worship of approach so that we can approach the holy God to offer worship of response. And we do this as a people. God isn't just seeking individuals to worship him. He's seeking a people to worship him. Just as he redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt to make them a nation who would worship him, God is redeeming Christians to make them a church who will worship him. The picture we have in Hebrews chapter 12 is that believers, through their spiritual union with Christ, have even now assembled with a vast multitude. I mean, look again at verses 22 and 23. Not only have we come to thousands of angels, but also to the church of Jesus, who is the firstborn over all creation. In Revelation 7, the, the Apostle John gets a glimpse of a heavenly future where he sees this happening. This is uh, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. John then speaks of angels being present too, and everyone that's there is worshipping Jesus and the Father. And now the, the truly amazing thing is that this is, a, uh, this is a future picture, but it's something that's also happening now. When we gather as Christians for worship, we are united spiritually with all believers. You see, Sundays are not just an anticipation of our future worship, but a participation in it right now. This is why attending church gatherings is so important and why it's so painful during lockdown that we can't do it. But thankfully, by the Spirit of God, we can still be united. So even today, sitting in your homes... We have come to the church of the firstborn during this online service. And it's this principle of gathered worship which shapes some of our practices on a Sunday. We want worship that is participatory rather than putting on a show that people just watch. We choose songs that everyone can sing. We say prayers that everyone can say amen to. We encourage you to speak about the sermon after the service so that you might continue to devote your heart to God. And when you participate in worship, you're doing it as part of a body of believers. Your voice, your heart joins with those around you so that together our worship is amplified and we're all built up in our faith. As I said earlier, a joy shared with others is a joy magnified. This is why we want intelligible words rather than just providing an emotional experience. 
our mind needs to be engaged as well as our affections so that our shared experience is one of spirit and truth that strengthens the bonds between us and deepens our satisfaction in Christ. This is why church worship is even better than worship at a football grand final. It's an experience that grows us to be more like Jesus. And not only are we a gathered people, we are gathering more people. As Christians, we call others to join us in worshipping God. In our Hebrews 12 passage, the verses I skipped, the author warns that one day God will shake the earth and the heavens, which is a picture of judgment. All those who persist in their broken, disordered worship will face the consequences for seeking satisfaction apart from God, for he is a consuming fire. To fix our hearts in devotion on anything lesser than God is to dishonour God and to stir up his just anger. You see, he alone deserves our worship. Therefore, we have a role to play in calling others to approach God through Jesus so they can offer the kind of worship that God deserves. John Piper makes this point when he's speaking about evangelism, about missions. He says, mission exists because worship doesn't. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he writes this. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God. Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Wow. Our worship of God should drive us to share the gospel with others and to invite them into the gathering so that they too can have their worship redirected and perfected. This is one reason why we always have an eye to the visitor in our services. We want those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus to see even just a glimpse of our wonderful God as we worship him. Also, we gather each Sunday for worship, but then we do scatter throughout the week. And we live lives of worship among the world so that we can point others to the majestic glories of God the Father and his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We want everyone to know that the human impulse to worship is only truly satisfied when we worship God through Jesus as a gathering people. Well, this is the last topic in our sermon series on a place to belong. I hope you can see how it Makes sense since the trajectory of salvation history is moving towards the picture from Revelation 7. People from every tribe and nation worshipping God forever just as he deserves. God has given us a place to belong so that we might enjoy giving him the glory he deserves. He deserves a people who will honour and worship him. And that's why he has called us and set his affections upon us as his beloved. He has formed us to be a family, a flock, and the body of Christ. He has made us saints so that we can enjoy his holy presence. And we're even partners in his mission of calling more people out of darkness into his light. And that's why this life is like a journey where we are pilgrims. And all of this 
is so we can be worshippers who find ultimate and everlasting satisfaction in God. Brothers and sisters, the beloved saints of God, I pray that this sermon series has been a blessing to you and a wonderful reminder of how God views you and the wonders God has in store for you. This is true even in the midst of COVID-19. And the Father is still seeking true worshippers who will join us in joyfully giving him the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is that you seek us to worship you, that you give us our heart's ultimate desire. You satisfy that impulse, that urge, that, that I guess that hardwired thing in our hearts that need for worship. We find it ultimately satisfied in you. And we find that you give us everything we need. And so may we be truly satisfied. May we follow Jesus, who is the ultimate worshipper. May he lead us in worship day by day, but also when we gather together. We pray that you would help us to be looking to the world around us and how we can gather others to share in worship of you. And in all this, Lord, we pray that you'd get the glory. Amen.